Paul. And I'm Grant. Before we get started, make sure to check out our old episodes on acast.com. Just search for The Atypical Rainbow. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Atypical Rainbow. We keep promising we'll put up stuff. We'll get there. Life's kind of gotten in the way at the moment, but we will get there, we promise. So today's episode is another episode of the series, Spectrum Analysis. We're going to talk a bit about exam anxiety. This has been somewhat inspired by Malcolm Gladwell, which I have become a little bit obsessed with, and you'll see that kind of running through a lot of future episodes. Today's episode is based on his podcast, Revisionist History, an episode called Puzzle Rush. If you haven't discovered Malcolm Gladwell and are interested just to find out about human behavior and about history and context and stuff, I highly encourage you to check out um, his podcast wherever you get good podcasts. But the episode in question talks about the idea of the uh, LSATs, which is the American Law School Entry Exam, and the idea that exam strategy and the way we assess people does not necessarily reflect the quality of professional they're necessarily going to be. So... Uh, I am going to reveal something that my parents aren't aware of, so they're listening. Sorry, you're about to find out the secret. Most of my friends already know. I assume it's not that you're gay. (laughs) (laughs) No, they should know that by now. I would hope they know that by now. Otherwise, they think you're a very, you know, masculine woman. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that I almost failed out of medical school on multiple occasions. So whenever my mum would ask me how I was doing at school, I'd always say... You know, I was kind of doing in the 70%, so never amazing, but enough to kind of get by. But there were multiple, multiple instances where I barely scraped by. Even my final exam, uh, of the three exams I did, so two written and one practical, for one I written, I passed by 0.03%. So I barely got through. But I've always known that I've never been a good exam taker. I, I get really anxious and in my head and I overthink things really badly. But the thing is, is that, you know... In in my day-to-day career, I don't get complaints. I don't get people telling me I'm I'm stupid or I'm not thinking things through. I I invest time and energy and brains in looking after my patients. And so I don't think that my score in medical school necessarily reflects the kind of doctor I am now. Admittedly, maybe my sub-specialization has helped, but I I, I think what this particular episode kind of points out is that the way you sit an exam is a technique in and of itself, and I'm not convinced that it actually equates to being a better doctor or a better lawyer. Yes. A point I'd like to make about almost failing out of medical school once you're in medical school is, I remember when I was doing my master's, we talked about the fact that if you take, like, the top two percentile of people and then put them on a bell curve just with each other, <laughs> it can make them feel like they're failing, even though they're still in the top two percent of people so being the bottom of medical school after you're basically the top to get into medical school is not as bad as it seems but that's an emotional argument not a practical argument like yeah okay so emotionally it's not healthy to consider yourself to be a failure because in the in the larger population you're still you know one of the more intelligent people by being able to get into med school or whatever whatever high scoring um, degree you got into but at the same time though the idea behind examinations the idea behind particularly timed examinations it's is that it's meant to test or assess your ability to perform right? oh no but I'm just saying is I think it's the other way around. I think you, it puts unnecessary stress on people to make them be really high achievers 
and then bell curve the high achievers. Like, it creates unnecessary stress, and in the way we were talking about in the master's degree, it causes a lot of eating disorders among medical students. So what I'm saying is, if you're out there and you're a medical student, and you're the bottom of your medical class, it's not actually, you're not actually doing that badly. Because you're already in there. Again, I know it feels like you're, you're I, I know it feels like you're failing, but you're actually doing a really good job to actually be there in the first place. Yes, but I'm not talking about the... Again, you're focusing on the emotional aspect. I'm talking about the practical aspect, right? So one of the things we're taught is that you you need to achieve a certain level of intelligence in order to even get into medical school, right? So you need to pass the, the UMAT, which is in Australia is like the, the pre-health sciences kind of exam that you take. Um, and then you have to get a good um, inter-score or ATAR or whatever the hell it's called now. So there's all these hurdles that you need to be able to jump over that are purely based on a score, right? Mm-hmm. And they're not even necessarily a score that, again, will reflect your, your capabilities as the professional you're going into, right? But one of the arguments that the, um, Malcolm Gladwell makes is that in real life, being able to sit an exam does not necessarily translate into actual practice. So, for example, in general practice, right, you get 15 minutes to make an assessment, but essentially what you're doing in those 15 minutes is you're ruling out what we call red flags. So you're looking out for symptoms that are indicators of something serious that needs to be dealt with immediately. But after that, if you've ruled out all the red flags, you actually have time to figure out stuff. You you have days and weeks. You can go, all right, let's do some investigations. Let's spend a bit more time asking questions. Let's ask the right people. So being, even though it sounds like you have to make the assessment in 15 minutes, what you're really doing is just making like the urgent assessment part. And then the rest of it, you can, you can take on the time with, but no one tells you that. Like that's not an inherent part of medical school. Everyone tells you in medical school, you need to know everything and you need to be able to operate and function in any urgent situation, but not every job is an urgent situation. Yeah. I think we're making the same point just in different ways. Because we're both saying that the system is unfair. I'm just saying that you, the fact that you feel more shame about being the bottom of medical school than some people I know who got like an ATAR of 50 mm. shows the system is broken. And you're like, I think we're both agreeing that the system is not working. Yeah. I'm just, I've just focused a little bit on your shame at the moment. Then we'll move on. <laughs> Well, see, I, I did feel shame before, but and at the time it was quite... I don't know, I wouldn't say overwhelming, but a swelling was dominant in my mind, enough that I felt the need to lie. Mm. But now I don't particularly care, because one of the things that I learned was that pretty much after intern year, nobody cares about your exams at all. Like, no one cares about your I remember results. when I was in year 12, the exact same... Like, someone was like, okay, once you once you are applying for jobs after university, no one's going to ask you what your age was. Yes. Absolutely. So at the time, it does feel like a giant thing. Yeah. And I think the fact that, at least when I went through as both a student and a teacher, the emphasis put on the exams because they're trying to weed out teacher favoritism does make the system very unfair for people who don't do well in exams. What What does that mean? So basically, like, you can get A's on all your assignments... But if you get a B on the exam, the assumption is the teacher has been too nice. Oh. Not that you don't perform well under pressure. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. So, the exam mark will be assumed to be the objective one. And everything else throughout the year is the subjective one. And therefore, if they don't match up, 
They don't assume stress. They assume favoritism. Isn't that the same concept behind the NAPLAN as well? Is that something about... Well, like, the NAPLAN's the... not... Okay, so the NAPLAN is different because the NAPLAN is not meant to be an assessment of the child. The NAPLAN is meant to be an assessment of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's meant to be looking at how the system is working and you're meant to look at it as a big picture thing. The problem is we do look at it as an individual thing. Yeah. And sometimes there is use in that. Like, I remember when I was a teacher, I was looked for value added in NAPLAN, but you don't sort of go, oh, this child has got, you know, this sort of NAPLAN, so therefore they're not working hard enough. It might be that that's just how well they can do. So, for sorry, for those who haven't grown up in the Australian education system, can you just give a brief summary of what the NAPLAN is? So, the NAPLAN is basically, so grade three, five, seven nine, they basically get all the kids to do, and all the kids in Australia to do an exam, uh, like multiple exams, actually, just to see where their numeracy and literacy skills are. Now, there's meant to be data for the department or the school or something, not sort of just this individual assessment thing. And it's meant to be one of those exams um, that you can't, like, you can't study for. You're meant to just do it. And whatever, it's sort of like a snapshot of where you are. And sometimes, you know, if you're not doing as well, they might give you extra help. If you're doing well, then they're like, well, that's good. You know, this school is, you know, doing a good job. And then funding could be assigned to schools based on their NAPLAN thing. But most schools try to make their NAPLAN results really good. So it doesn't really work that way anyway. Well, yeah. And the question is, is that because that was the intent or is that just how things have evolved? Like, that's, that's what I think about... Well, the, the intent was to assess how Australian schools are doing. And sometimes they compare them to, other, like, other countries. Okay. So they can get, like, the NAPLAN data and they go, okay, we're not doing as well as Singapore. Mm-hmm. See, that's why I've, how I feel about examinations in general. I feel that they started off with a really good intent, but have kind of lost the point because it then became about performing well for the exam, not necessarily being good at your job. I'm sure for any test, you can get a coach, right? And for me, the concept of an exam coach, if the purpose of it is to perform well for the exam, makes sense. But essentially, you're falsifying the record because the whole, the original intent, at least from what I can gather, the original intent behind the UMAT, whatever entry exam you're trying to see it, was to try and see whether or not you have the inherent qualities to be a whatever the profession may necessarily be. So um, let's uh, let's dive into the UMAT for a second. Unless it's changed format, you know, since I last sat it, this is how it used to work. So there were three separate sections for the UMAT. There was logical reasoning, spatial reasoning, and there's a third one which I can't seem to remember because it was that long ago. But, you know, so spatial reasoning, you'd have, like... um, pattern puzzles. So you'd have to, you'd be given a pattern, you have to pick the next one in the sequence. There used to be this big grid of shapes and you had to try and find the shapes, like a where's Wally, but with in geometric shapes in it. Then the logical reasoning, I think the last one was empathetic reasoning, actually. So you had to pick the most empathetic answer and it was hilarious because it was so obvious which one you meant to choose. You meant to choose the most pragmatic and balanced and conciliatory, but... Is that the one where like, there's a kitten stuck in this tree. Do you save the kitten or light the tree on fire? <laughs> that's simple but yes something along those lines well like Jenny and uh, Arjan are having an argument how should you resolve their argument should you A give Jenny the ball B give Arjan the ball C them, sit them down and talk them through their issues and you're like 
Well, you clearly want the last one, but I want Jenny to have the ball. But I'm going to choose C because that's the one you want. Why did you want Jenny to have the ball? I don't know. This is, it was a crap example. There was no detail in the stem. Uh, but that, so uh, the third one was logical reasoning. So it was a, it was a sort of word logic puzzle. I can't I can't cite an example, but those are the kind of ideas. And so if you think about those three three things conceptually, it makes sense that you want a candidate to be able to have those skills inherently to be a doctor. So for spatial reasoning, if you want them to be a surgeon, you want them to be able to spot things when they've got like an open abdomen in front of them. Empathetic reasoning makes sense, good bedside manner. Logical reasoning also makes a lot of sense. But once again, if you train yourself or if you get trained to sit the UMAP properly and sort of go or exceed beyond your natural capacity... Does that necessarily mean you will be a better doctor? Well, which bit of the new UMAT do you think you could trade for? Because All of them. Spatial reasoning, like you can't really rote learn spatial reasoning. You, but you can practice at it though. Like you can practice spatial reasoning over and over and over and do various puzzles. Which I get, like I guess exam preparation, everyone does that. You look past exams, look at old questions, kind of see the um, the format. But that's the thing: exams are a game. I've always thought exams are a game. And like when I was teaching GP registrars, I used to say to them, "Don't think of the exams as like real life practice. It's a game. Learn how to play the game." And then you'll be fine. That's how you figure it out. The rest, like, if you try to, like, put it within a real-life scenario, you're going to say really wild and wacky things. So play the game, and that's how you'll succeed. Even though that's not what we're meant to tell them. We were very clearly meant to tell them, you know, this is meant to reflect in real life. We all knew it wasn't. Like, it just wasn't. I guess the point is, should the system necessarily have timed examinations? Well, I think it all depends on what you're actually trying to test for. So the thing I was thinking about was select entry schools. Um, like, they can do an exam to, en- to enter the school, or a scholarship for a private school. You can do an exam. Because what they want to see is that you're good at exams. Yes. Because they care about your exam results. Absolutely. Whereas going into a career, it's less important because they're not actually... The end result is not that you're good at exams. It's good that you're good at a career. Yeah. The other example from the Puzzle Rush episode was... That, so, there, he was focusing on lawyers, and he um, he spoke to some law, Supreme Court law clerks, right? So, people whose job it is to do the grunt work for Supreme Court judges. And he asked them, you know, how do you process information? Like, if you get a case brought before you, how do you do it? And they're like, we, we take it slowly, and we think it through carefully. And you're like, well, that's not what an exam does. An exam inherently forces you to instinctively make decisions to kind of go, all right, you either know this or you don't, you choose it or you don't. Like, it's all very time pressured. And what they pointed out with the LSATs particularly, which I think is the same in the UMAT as well, is that of each section has a very specific time allotment, right? And so in, in the LSAT, it's 35 minutes each. But what that means is that if you have a strength in one area, but a weakness in another, you're not allowed to transpose that time over to the other one. So you might crush one section, but absolutely fail the other because it's not part of your inherent skill. 
And why this is an episode of Spectrum Analysis is because in autism, what the data tells us is that people with autism have major skill discrepancies, right? Mm. Where they'll uh, people with autism will have great strengths in certain things, whether it's verbal processing, uh, photographic memory, whatever, but could have significant weaknesses in other areas. So if you put that in an exam situation, the exam does not actually reflect the person's ability to do things, right? Like you could hire someone who has this obsession with with the law or with robotics, but they might have terrible cognition, like uh, gross motor skills. But if all you need is that one skill, but you show someone the exam result, you can be like, well, this person's not smart enough for, like, doesn't meet our arbitrary standards. Therefore, we're not going to hire them. And that's not necessarily um, accurate or beneficial for the company if they're just hiring people based on a number. Yes. But I guess, I guess the flip side is those doctors who can't talk to people. Yes, but that happens after the UMAP, though. Like, there, I, I've met plenty of people in, in my class alone who just should never have been doctors. Ever, 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 ever. Um, people who were overly anxious, who couldn't handle things under pressure. So this person had clearly sat an exam, gotten through the exam, and somehow slipped through the cracks because they, they couldn't handle pressure in any way. And that's not necessarily their fault. They were just in the wrong career. But the, I guess, you know, as I've been repeating throughout this entire episode, exams don't necessarily reflect the quality of the practitioner. Yeah. So one of the things that when you mentioned this to me, I brought up, and I'd like to sort of record your response to this this time, was the idea of a code. Like when actually you do have to do medicine in a time frame in order to save someone's life. Do you think exams at all set you up for that? No, because again, people, there are people who slip through the cracks who just, who manage to test well. Because these, again, these are specific situations and different levels of pressure, right? So the, there is a pressure to perform depending on the kind of person you are and, and the people around you. But that, but even if you can perform well on an exam, if you train well enough, if you get enough coaching, then you learn that. And theoretically, the idea behind like code code blues and code greys and code blacks is that, yeah, the more you experience, and that's why, you know, you start as an intern, the more you experience, the better you get at it. But I just don't think that your ability to answer a multi-choice question necessarily reflects your ability to process the information in front of you. Because reading a, a, a statement and being able to reread it is very different from a patient having a heart attack in front of you. Like, you have to react. You have to be instinctive. Moreover, in a code, unless you're waking out in the country or uh, unless it's late at night, you're rarely ever alone, right? So it is a shared act to be able to manage a code to an extent. Like, you know, depending on your seniority, you are obliged to, to lead the, the task. But there are still people there to do things for you, to be able to make suggestions, to observe things that you can't necessarily observe. So, sure, is, is you know, being able to handle exam anxiety theoretically beneficial? Yes. But anxiety can be very specific, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and who's to say that how well you perform in an exam when you're 18 necessarily reflects how well you're going to perform as a doctor when you're 23 or 24? Like, a lot can happen in that time period. So... To say that there's a direct correlation between exam performance and job performance, I think, is erroneous and doesn't necessarily account for things that can happen in a five to six year period. Yeah. See, I I think of myself as someone who's actually good in a crisis. Like, actually, I'm very good at acting when there's actually a crisis. I might fall apart later. Mm. (laughs) But I'm good when there's actually a crisis. But I don't think that translated to exams 
I don't know, maybe because it didn't feel like enough of a crisis during exams. So, like, example I was talking about recently with my therapist was when I was in grade five or six, um, we were treading water and it, another kid near me freaked out and basically climbed on top of me in this deep water. The instructor wasn't paying any attention whatsoever. Mm. So I actually swam underwater to the edge of the pool while being potentially drowned by this person because there was no one to help me. Mm. And that was, like, I was quite young. But then when it came to exams, I could, like, I wasn't good at that. (laughs) Mm. So obviously a life or death situation like that, or when we went over that waterfall and our boat flipped over. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I dealt with it quite well. But yeah, like a life and death situation I'm actually good in, but an exam situation I'm not. Okay. So, so what were you like back in uni? What was... So I, I kind of became good at exams, um, I, re- I think around third year. Like it just clicked for me. Like sometimes things just clicked for me. There was a, I, I remember the point where exams clicked for me. And I also remember the point where job, like job interviews clicked for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, like there's, yeah, there's this point sort of in third year of uni where exams clicked for me, which was probably one of the last years I did exams. <laughs> Yeah. Because in DipEd, we didn't do exams. Oh, no, they, but then I went back and did psychology. So I did do exams then. But yeah, like, I I wasn't very good at exams, but it was almost not... It was almost this, I don't know, depression rather than anxiety. Like, just a not believing in myself and sort of this... Yeah, I got really down on myself mm. rather than freaking out and getting anxious and having, I guess, an adrenal reaction, which might have been useful for me. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's the difference. Maybe when I have the adrenal reaction to a life and death situation, I'm actually really good. But when I'm just having the, I'm like, just self-doubt, I'm not good enough to get through this exam. And I think maybe because I knew how much pressure there was on the exam, because weirdly I understood the system, I think even as a student, <laughs> that... My exam, if my exam mark was bad, it would bring down... And, like, you can look at my year 12 things and it's like, A, 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 exam, B. Mm. A, 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 exam, B. So, I think it did. It did draw down, like, all of my marks. Mm. Because I did worse than the exam. Maybe my maths exam, not so much. Like, I almost became the top of my um, maths class, my year 12 maths class, when I was 16. Because I was doing year 12 maths mm. when I should have been doing year 10. Um, and I was like second in my class. So maybe maths was better. Yeah. Because there was the answers. Well, this is, this is the, the difference though, right? So I think that there is a difference between processing and rote learning, right? Which I'm, I'm sure is a, is a common concept. But if you think about the distinction between maths and say English, for example, sitting a maths exam is basically just, you've taken the one concept and you've repeated it over mm-hmm. and over again. So you don't need to draw on rote knowledge. You only need one formula or what, or like a handful of formulas and you should be able to figure it out. But you know, more complex things like writing an essay is more pressure and the ability to um, process information and to relay it in such a way where it, it is logical and flows well is a greater challenge. And so I think that's the difference. It's that, like, if we look at that, that swimming example you gave, right? The task that you requ- were required to do that your adrenal- adrenaline kind of drove was not complicated. It was, it was frightening, obviously, mm-hmm. but the act that you had to perform was not particularly complicated. Whereas the same level of stress 
uh, that could potentially disturb your cognition when you're trying to um, write an essay about uh, Pride and Prejudice because it's not the same skill. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not the same kind of idea. And so I think that might explain why um, yeah, you, you found that, again, that skill discrepancy between uh, different subjects. Yeah. And I think also, like, when I was in university, like, I didn't really have drama exams or they were performing, which, you know, was easy for me. Mm. <laughs> um, so it was the legal studies exams that I kind of had to click with. And in legal studies, it's sort of halfway between the maths and the English because it's kind of like, okay, this is the answer. Like, I know what law applies. Yes. Like, I know what applies in situation. Not so much, you know, I'm going to make an argument about the, this metaphor. Yeah. Whereas, I think, because in VC I was doing a lot of English subjects, because that was kind of my strength, it was a lot more open and abstract. And I think that's where I might have got lost. Mm. And interestingly, like, I do, I do love that stuff, but it might be hard to be examined on that stuff. Mm. And now Jake, like, Jake really struggles with, the sort of stuff that I, I love, but I probably wouldn't want assessed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is the more creative thing. Whereas he, he much prefers the more, um, like, the argumentative, structured essay things when it comes to, comes to writing. Mm. Which, which makes sense, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the context of autism, uh, focusing on facts rather than mm-hmm. creation of stuff. And look, maybe he'll discover something as he gets older. Maybe he will get better creative writing. But I think that if... Um, if it comes to it, I'd probably encourage him to do English language rather than doing English or English lit. Mm. Um, again, unless he discovers some sort of creative passion, because I think it would suit his sensibilities better, kind of the understanding of the process and the original words rather than trying to interpret the words themselves. Uh, and, you know, that's the thing. Being able to recognise his strengths, I think, is important as well and focusing on them. Whereas exams inherently... I mean, that's the idea. They're meant to kind of test your weaknesses. One of the things I always found really frustrating about exams was the feedback. So uh, there was one year, I think it was fourth year med, where we got feedback and I had I had done quite poorly again. Like, I didn't fail, but I was pretty close to failing. And so all these sort of close to failing students were brought in to see the Dean of Medicine to talk through their exam results. Except what I found really frustrating was that when they gave you responses, it was in broad categories. So it would be like cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal. And I'm like, okay, cool. So what did I get wrong? And they're like, no, can't tell you that. I'm like, oh. okay, well then how do I know? It's like, well, how do I know what to, where to get it? It's like, this is the area. Review all of cardiovascular medicine. I'm like, are you joking? Read a textbook about the heart. Right? And so, and what I found was, because no one goes into exam... Well, actually, a lot of people probably do. I never went into an exam thinking I knew nothing, right? Yeah. I was went into an exam thinking, okay, I think I know enough. I think mm-hmm. I know enough to get by, and I'm pretty confident about these things. So when I went back to relearn things, I'd reread textbooks and go, I already knew this. Like, yeah. I knew this, I knew this. Why am I rereading this stuff? It was such a vague piece of feedback. And part of it, again, is part of the educational nous as it were. They can't give away answers to questions because they don't want you repeating it back to other people who will then get that same question right. Which, in a way, I kind of understand. But at the same time, it just, it didn't help me. Like, the feedback was shockingly bad. Um, Yeah, that sounds like a waste of your time and a waste of the Dean of Medicine's time. Well, exactly. So, I just... Because, like, you guys could just... Like, if they worried about the exam questions, you guys would probably be able to, like, remember two or three exam questions. (laughs) Like... 
Right? Like, you could, if you want to tell people for the next year what some of the exam questions were, you could. And you have access to past exams. Like, they give you past exams to, to practice. So, yeah. it's not like they completely inhibit your ability to see past questions, but for whatever reason, they decided this broad philosophy is what worked. And look, maybe it works for some people, but for an autistic person who needs precision and facts and data and all that, it's really, really unhelpful. Yeah. It's like, makes you think of like when you mentioned like spot 10 differences in a picture and you found nine of them, you just can't find that 10th one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Being told that it's there doesn't help you. You're like... <laughs> exactly. exactly. I already know that I found nine of them. I just don't know where that 10th one is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, moving on to a, a slight tangent there. So, let me ask you, when you were applying for jobs, did the university that you attended matter? Like, did anyone comment on the fact that you went to La Trobe or Swinburne? I don't Swinburne think Deacon? so. But I, it's hard to it's hard to know because, you know, by if they were going to discriminate against you based on which university you went to, you wouldn't even know. Like, you wouldn't even hear from them if they were going to uh, discriminate based on that. Um, I, do, I do remember when... So, I applied for behavioral science out of school and... I didn't get into behavioral science. I got into arts instead. But then the next year, they like they published like that sort of the ground where they were like taking people from this sort of area of the enter, but not like definitely get in. And I was in that area, so I was like, why didn't I get an interview, or why didn't I get a chance? And the only thing I've ever been able to come as like my theory is that it was entirely based on my date of birth. Because someone said something about life experience. And because I was very young when I was applying for university, because I was only like 17, I'm like, what information do they have? Pretty much nothing except for my enter score and my age and my name. I could only assume it was based on my age that I didn't get a chance to get in on that middle ground. But it was an undergraduate degree. Surely they wouldn't have just nothing but 20-year-olds applying for that. Well, the thing is, I was, I was very young for a school leader. Mm. Like I in like, Victoria, <laughs> in Victoria, the, I guess. Queensland, the graduate at seventeen. Yes, in Victoria, I guess. But yeah, like they may have chosen someone who had more life experience than me, so they're like, oh, the seventeen-year-old, he can just do a year of arts and then transfer over or something. Mm. And I, I had the opportunity to transfer over, but I decided that I didn't that I wanted to get into the workforce a bit earlier than that because mm. you know, one or two years does make a difference. Yeah. Like, you know, especially when you're that young, it does feel like one or two years is a big difference. <laughs> True. But yeah, I, I don't know whether I would have got interviews based on, like, I don't mean education. I don't think people care as much about which university you went to. Yeah. Like, imagine medicine, there's definitely a hierarchy. Like, Deacon would be third. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not all. I'm not so. Sh- I'm not sure. I've only ever been on the other side of it once, and I what what I do remember of the hiring experience was that there were some people who had CVs that were four or five pages long and still listed their high school achievements, and I went, "What are you doing, man? You're like, you're you're at least eight years out of high school. Why is this still here? Clean it up. I do not care." But I I never looked at the university they went to. Um, like, you know, I looked at some of their, their experience and the qualification, like which hospitals they went to and, uh, whether they did anything outside of hospital work. But beyond that, 
university stuff never mattered. But it seems to be a, a very uh, American thing, or maybe it's a, an industry-specific thing, right? Where your your college matters. So again, in this episode of, of Revisionist History, uh, they they had some audio from Antonin Scalia, the the former Supreme Court justice who who passed away a few years ago, and he said that the way he chose his law clerks was only Harvard graduates. Now this is a fairly common trope that we hear all the time, but he then um, sort of lauded the the skills of one particular law clerk who went to Ohio State, which is apparently not considered a very sort of high quality law school. But he said, you know, this was the best law clerk he had ever had. Yeah. So despite the fact that he recognised that the best law clerk he'd ever had did not come from Harvard, he still only hired people from Harvard. Because well, how did the Ohio State guy get in? He well, somehow he was actually working for a different Supreme Court justice, uh, yeah. but because I think one they he had he was in like retirement phases, so then mm-hmm. all his clerks got kind of redistributed out to other people. But, but, but the way that Anthony Scalia kind of justified it where he, was he said, I just don't have time to filter out everybody. Mm-hmm. So the system I choose is by just going through the college, right? Um, and I, I, I imagine that must happen in Australia. I reckon it happened less in Australia. And the reason I think that is because in Australia, you go to university based on which course you want to go to. And sometimes geography. Whereas in America, there seems to be much more of a just go across the entire continent to go to university and just go, like, get into which the best university you can mm. with your school. And you get, basically just go there and then work out what you want to do once you're there. Yeah. So I think with Australia, it's much more common for you to go to something that's geographically suitable to you. Mm. And also that's offering, you know, the double degree that you want. Like... Latrobe, I think, was the only one that offered a double degree of psychology and legal studies. Mm. So it wasn't like I was just applying to Melbourne, Monash, Deakin, Latrobe, and Latrobe's the only one I got into. It's like, okay, so this is the course I wanted to go to. This is, like, I used to walk to Latrobe. Mm. And after spending, you know, my entire high school, you know, leaving at 6.30 in the morning to go across the entire city to go to the high school I wanted to. Mm. It was kind of nice to go to a university I could walk to. <laughs> but yeah, so I think in Australia, there's less of that. Like, I think maybe in medicine, there is a bit of, like, everyone wants to go to Melbourne. Yeah, very much so. There's, there's an elitism about going to Melbourne. Yeah, and there's probably a bit of elitism, probably, I imagine, law as well. But for education, it probably, like, I don't think anyone really cares. And also, it's kind of like that thing where no one cares once you're in the workforce. I think once I got my first job, all people paid attention to was what school I was at. Yeah. Like, it would only have mattered for that one point in my life, which was the end of my dip ed, until I had a school. Then any job I applied for, they'd call up the previous principal and say, was he good? Yeah. <laughs> no one was going back to Latrobe, even, like, 12 months later. Yeah. So when I first applied for my internship, I applied uh, to all, all the hospitals near near my area, so like Monash and Box Hill and stuff, and I ended up in Gippsland, which is sort of country Victoria, and I didn't want to go, but I, I kind of felt that because my score was so low, my chances for getting into a city hospital um, was not going to happen. Except what I later learned, which I, I wish I'd known, was that there were second round picks. So all I should, what I probably should have done was rejected the Gippsland offer in the first round and then um, just waited and hoped that one of the city ones would have some open spaces. Now, admittedly, I don't know if you can do that now. I think that's, I think there are even fewer intern spaces for the higher volume of students trying to get in with 
multiple postgraduate medical schools opening up in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, back then, I kind of wished that I'd have been able to stay in the city. And don't get me wrong, the Giftland experience was unique and it was interesting. But I travelled home every weekend. I just it wasn't it wasn't where I wanted to be. And Except when I came visited. Well, yes, <laughs> but I still would have. It would have been nice if I was near you rather than having to, you know, make you commute out to Warragul in order to, to see me. <laughs> By then, I was used to long. Like I, I, you know, I'd worked in Shepparton and Ballarat, and came back, you know, to visit my parents in Melbourne. So I, like, yeah, the the drives to you were nothing. Like there would have been a lot to grant a few years before that. Yeah, but by then I was like country drives. It's fine. I'm enjoying the lack of traffic lights, even if it takes an hour to get somewhere. Yeah, fair. But I guess, the, you know, the thing is, when I was an intern, I didn't get complaints from my superiors. Uh, I remember, actually, as a resident, this is, so this is the year after, my, my registrar sat me down and said, you know, you are a really good resident. I don't want to say that you're obedient, but that's, that's essentially what you are. <laughs> and I went, well, that's... Nice, I guess. Um, and he, he was being genuine. Like, he was being genuinely lovely. And he was not a guy to dish out compliments. He was very harsh. And so, I just I, don't get me wrong, I wasn't a perfect resident or an intern. I, I got people telling me to do things and, and whatnot. And I, I, but, I, you know, that was all part of the learning. But I wasn't, like, some disastrous doctor who was killing people left, right, and centre. But if you looked at my score... Mm. That would that would reflect badly. I don't know how much univer- the where I went to as a university influenced things. Admittedly, again in Australia there aren't that many. Like there's only really uh, when I was studying there was only two medical schools in Victoria. Yeah, and to travel interstate for your job was not necessarily common. So yeah, they, like I think when when you're coming through and there's only two schools, it's kind of like if you want to discriminate, you're discriminating against half of the people. (laughs) There's only two options. Yeah. Even Melbourne or Monash. I will say, though, from from memory, what actually influenced more was not the university you attended, but which hospital did your placements in. Mm. So if you did your placements in uh, the Royal Melbourne, which was directly affiliated with Melbourne University, it seemed that that was where you were more likely to to go for your intern year because they knew you had the experience. So once again, I guess familiarity is sort of what can drive hiring, which in a way kind of can exclude people. Yeah. I think in teaching there could be a bit of that, but obviously there's a lot more schools than there is hospitals. Yeah. But if you happen to do placement at a school and do a really good job and they had a job coming up, Mm. like you've got such a leg up. Yeah. So I guess end message here. I think that exam anxiety is a real thing, um, and particularly for for a person with autism who might be a perfectionist, or who might see things mm. in black and white, or who is prone to anxiety, which then messes with your cognition. Exams can really mess things up. Um, and one yeah, of- between, between our kids' anxiety and perfectionism, it's probably going to be a hard time for them going through, like, year 12. Yeah. So... You know, how do we address that? You know, I, I like, the, so the the Puzzle Rush episode advocated for the idea of, um, uh, like, focusing only on assignments, right? So assignments where people had the time to think things through and to process the information rather than focusing on, yeah, time. Decisions. So you're talking a system, systemic change. I mean, there are, we can look at it at multiple levels. So systemic change, yeah. But, like, I guess there's, there's two levels. There's... What we like a utopia to be like. Sure. And what we can actually do. Yes. Yeah, so so in a utopia, what yeah. would be your suggestion? In a utopia, I think there'd be a lot more trust in teachers. It's hard, though, 
to like tra- like that entire like assuming because a kid does badly on the exam that the teacher has been too nice to them mm. um, because it's not always true. No, but I do kind of get why it might be the best of the bad options because if I guess if you just let the teachers mark whatever they want, then I, I've known teachers who give A's to everyone. Mm. <laughs> like, I've worked with teachers who give A's to everyone. So, it is hard, but I don't, like, I guess the American system of basically everyone just going to college and then doing the courses. Like, if you've got, if you're doing, like, first year legal studies with the person who gets to decide whether you go into law school then they can watch you for an entire year. They can read your assignments. They can see your exams. And then they probably actually have a better understanding of you than a number. Mm. So, like, I know Melbourne University tried to go to that, but then it's a hard sell to, say, spend an extra couple of years at Melbourne University to do, like, an American system in one university, whereas you could just go to another university and come out quicker with it and get a job. Like, yeah. it's a hard sell. So, I guess in a utopian system... I guess everyone would just get to go to university for a year and the the people who were in charge of the courses would get to know them as people mm. and get to know their work and then decide whether they can go into medicine or law or behavioural science. Mm. Okay, so that's utopia. So what do we do now? What do we do? Well, I guess the thing we have to do is try to manage the... Exam anxiety. So we're talking as parents. Yeah. Yeah. So try to manage the exam anxiety. And it's hard because I think that my problem was, wasn't so much I became anxious as I had self-doubt. And that's what caused me to struggle. So, you know, if my parents had put me on anti-anxiety medicine, it wouldn't have helped. Mm. So I guess mindfulness might help. Um... Like, I did a lot of exam practice. Like, my school... I think I did my first exam when I was in year eight. Just to sort of practice doing exams. Mm. So, so even though I had a lot of practice doing exams, it didn't help. Yeah. Like, it's still... Like, so, 98, I did my first exam. And I didn't really... It didn't really click for me to be good at exams until third year uni. So, that would have been, like... 2003 or something. Yeah. So, all that practice didn't help. Mm. So, I don't know. Do you have thoughts? See, my my feeling is it's about expectation, right? So, for me, the the point of performing well is in an exam was because it led to the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, you need to get a certain interscore in order to be able to get into medicine, which would then get into this, which would get, then get you to this, right? But what I would want to teach Jake and Matt is that ultimately it, it doesn't matter because people change their careers three and four times in their lifetime. Yep. Um, it doesn't. People stop looking at where you attended or your your exam mark after the first year, mm-hmm. um, and you know it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't change your mind later. You know, I think I remember being told when I was younger that you should get a big uh, high enter score no matter what you want to do because it gives you options. And I'm like, but what if I don't want the options? And and I think that was the problem, is that they just... 
there was this, always this education, this sort of uh, military kind of feeling that I had to perform well because it was the thing to do. But plenty of people are success stories from not having gone to school, from doing poorly in school, from being like underperformers. It's really about knowing what it is you want. And I think that's more important. So Yeah, I, I remember being told not to use your enter score as if it was like a budget you were trying to spend the most of. <laughs> Yeah, now I got taught the opposite very much. So. You're you. You're at a private school. They wanted they wanted their good interest school, and also I'm Asian, so you know yes. my parents just, so, just assumed that the only way to succeed was to succeed at everything and then see how you go. Yeah, your your well, yeah, your parents wanted you to go to medicine, so basically you have to like you have to get into it. Yeah, but like I like I didn't have that, so I was it was sort of like okay, so if you get ninety, but the course you want to do requires eighty, mm. do the course you want to do. Yeah. Don't just go, oh, I've got 90, so I'll do this course. I don't, like, I got 90, so now I'm going to be a lawyer because I got a 90. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and be a sad lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So I think my school being a public school and, you know, me not being Asian, which <laughs> I, I can repeat you without being racist, <laughs> meant that, yeah, I got taught those lessons, which I think I would pass on to the boys. Mm. That you work out what you want to do. Before you get the enter score, and if you get a really enter score way above what you need, that's fine. Just do the course you want to do. Yeah. Cool. Let's end it there. Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to check out our old episodes and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Atypical Rainbow. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you next time.